Our scripture reading for today is Luke 14, verses 1 to 14, and it reads, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed, they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. All right, good morning, everyone. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regen, and Pastor Albert, our lead pastor, is on vacation this week. His kids had the week off from school, so they're in Southern California. So we're going to take a break in our Second Peter series. We've been working our way through the book of Second Peter, and we're going to turn our attention to this story from Luke. We've spent a couple of weeks looking at Luke's gospel, and in particular at some stories that come towards the middle section of the book that only show up in Luke's telling of the Jesus story. They're parables that are unique to the book of Luke. They come in this section called the travel narratives, where Jesus is on his way from his home base in Galilee, where he was raised and started his ministry, and as he heads towards Jerusalem, where, of course, he will meet his ultimate fate as he lays his life down on the cross. So, These travels take place on the road in Samaria, mostly. Samaria is this hostile territory, not a lot of openness to Jesus and his message. And what's fascinating is that in that place, Jesus doesn't preach more. He doesn't teach more. He doesn't get louder. In fact, in many ways, he gets quieter. And we see him using this ordinary, everyday language and ordinary, everyday moments to communicate the good news about himself and about his kingdom. So we see Jesus telling stories and having conversations, and that's what we are paying attention to as we make our way through the middle section of Luke's gospel in this series. So what I want to do now is pray for a moment, and then we'll turn our attention to this text. Father, thank you for this space, this time that we have to gather together to worship you, to hear from Scripture, to take communion together, to be together as we grow in friendship and relationship with one another. I ask now, God, that you would teach us anew from this passage in Luke. Perhaps we've heard it before, maybe we're familiar with it at some level, but break it small, make it fresh for us today as we consider what it means to love each other well. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how many of you have had the experience of being a VIP at a fancy event or maybe flying first class or some kind of like privileged sort of experience? Anybody have one of these experiences? Only a few of us maybe? Okay. I've only had maybe like three or four in my entire lifetime. But one of them revolves around this. I have a good friend who is a lighting designer for big concerts. He's done everybody from Jack Johnson to Toby Keith, some of my favorite artists. <laughs> but whenever one of his shows comes to town, I usually try to go because mostly I want to catch up with my friend, but I also get this magical backstage pass. And what's really cool about this is it's allowed me to go behind the scenes on some of these big tours and in some really cool venues. I've actually stood on the stage at the Boston Opera House playing Jackson Brown's guitars. Now, Jackson Brown may be a little bit dated for some of you. He's more like my parents' generation, so apologies to anyone if you're a big fan. But I don't know much about him. But Jackson Brown, I know this about him. He has one of the most incredible guitar collections of any human being on the face of the earth right now. And so to be able to stand on the stage in the Boston Opera House and strum one of his guitars, like these really cool kinds of experiences. Now... As someone who's not a huge Jackson Brown fan, there's a small part of me that feels just a little bit guilty about having these kinds of experiences, right? And I know there are people who are going to be at that show that night who have been following this guy for 20, 30, 40 years. They give their, they like sacrifice a goat to go to one of his concerts. And here I am backstage on the tour bus playing one of his guitars. So there's this part of me that's like, oh, I should give this pass to someone. And then I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to enjoy this because I almost never have these kinds of experiences. As a culture, we crave insider status, right? We want to be on the inner circle. Marketers know this really well. There's this phenomenon with all kinds of different companies where membership subscriptions are soaring. And just even thinking about my own life, I have a Prime membership with Amazon. I have a Costco card. I have a credit card. I used to have a credit card. And then I took financial peace, and Dave Ramsey told me to cut it up. But anyway, I had this card that, like, if you, the more you used it, you got membership points, more ex exclusive offers. We're sort of obsessed with this culture of exclusivity. So I did a little bit of research on this just to see what was kind of out there out of curiosity. And the most interesting thing I found on the internet this week was this. There's a movement among people who are really big fans of the Waffle House. There's one right here. <laughs> There's a movement to create VIP seating at a Waffle House. You get a membership and you build up points and then you can go to this VIP seating at any Waffle House. Now, the Waffle House is not really a California phenomenon, okay? But how many of you have been to one of these places? Oh, quite a few. That's exciting. The Waffle House doesn't really cry out VIP experience, does it? <laughs> Again, though, there's something in us that deeply desires this kind of status. To know that we're special, that we're set apart, that we're different, that maybe even we're just a little bit better or more important than someone else. 
And yet there's also this thing inside of us that is sort of turned off by exclusivity. Having VIP rights to the Waffle House is kind of funny, but when you're told you can't come here, you don't belong here because you're not from here, because you're not like us, because you're not one of us, man, something just goes off inside of us, right? No, no, that's not right. So culturally, we have this ambivalence about exclusivity. On the one hand, there's this kind of repulsion to it. We see its inherent wrongness, but there's also this strong desire inside of us to be set apart from others, to be seen as unique or special. Now, we deal with this, we see this in pretty much every area of life, but for some reason, religious people in particular seem to really struggle with this ambivalence about exclusivity. Albert and I read an article earlier this year that highlighted the 10 reasons why visitors don't come back to a church. And this was actually based on real surveys that this organization had done. And some of them were pretty sort of obvious, but one of them was this. People don't come back to a church when they sit in a member's seat and are told they have to get up and move to another seat. (laughs) Which is kind of like, duh, I wouldn't go back to that church either. I could not believe that's still a thing. But it just highlights how easily we get sucked into this obsession over status, over becoming concerned with who is in and who is out. And of course, it's no different in Jesus' day. And so this leads us into our text. If you still have your Bible open, take a look at Luke 14 with me. We're going to go through this scene here. Verse 1. Verse 1 is loaded with all kinds of context. One Sabbath, when he, he being Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. So Luke sets the scene for us here in verse 1. Lots of different things going on. First, we learn that it is Sabbath. Okay, the Jewish day of rest. The observance of Sabbath comes out of the Old Testament. In fact, it comes out of the creation story where we see God create the world in six days. And he calls it good, and then we read that on the seventh day, He rested. Sabbath also comes out of the Ten Commandments and the books of the law, the four books that come after the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In these books, God is re-emphasizing all kinds of things, but particularly the Sabbath for his people who he has just rescued from slavery in Egypt. So this people who for 400 years had been making bricks every single day of their lives are now free from slavery. And so Sabbath is partly about reminding them, you are not a machine. You are not just a cog in the machine of the Egyptian economy. You are a human being created in the image of God. And you need these rhythms of rest to reconnect with God, to reconnect with his purposes for you. So Sabbath was about reminding Israel about that connection, and ultimately that their needs are met through God and not through their work, not through their production, not through their consumption. And over time, this practice, this observance of a day of rest became a distinctive practice for the people of Israel, a way of setting themselves apart 
from everyone else. Now, the second thing we see in verse 1, it's dinner time. Now, remember, Jesus is on the road, which means that he is relying on the hospitality, the mercy of others. So this offer to come to dinner at this Pharisee's house is no small thing. Now, a lot of times the Pharisees get a bad reputation in the stories about Jesus, and certainly we'll see some ways in which they blow it here in just a moment. But this is an incredibly generous, intimate even, invitation to invite Jesus over to their home for a meal, and not just any meal, but this Sabbath meal. Okay, this is a sacred moment, a sacred space that Jesus has been invited into. Now, anyone who's read the Old Testament will also know that food was another major distinctive for the Jewish people. All kinds of rules about what you could eat and what you could not eat and how to offer hospitality through food and how to take care of someone who's in your home. Now, Jesus is, again, on the road. We've talked about this throughout this series. He's in Samaria. Samaria is a multicultural context. Jews and Gentiles and then Samaritans, who were a combination of Jew and Gentile, all living together in the same geographical place that happens to be dominated by a foreign military empire called Rome. All different kinds of people, all different kinds of cultures bumping up against one another in Samaria. So in many ways, it makes a lot of sense that so much attention was paid to these distinctive practices, particularly to food and to Sabbath. These were practices that helped bring order to a very chaotic world. Now, completing the scene is the truth, the reality that Jesus is eating dinner in the home of a Pharisee. And as we see, it's not just any Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisees, a high-ranking official. Of all the people in the Jewish world, the Pharisees would care a lot about what was being eaten and about the observance and practice of Sabbath. To them, these were not just about culture, even though that was really important. These were actually issues of salvation. The Pharisees believed very, very fervently that if they just kept the law, and in particular the purity laws, the laws that had to do with keeping themselves pure through the observance of these practices, they would be able to hasten the coming of the Messiah, this person who would lead their people to freedom. And in particular, freedom from this foreign oppression under the Roman Empire. So again, if they could just be good enough, if they could just follow the rules well enough, this Messiah would show up who would bring them the freedom to worship God without persecution, the freedom to govern themselves, the freedom to be Jewish. The Messiah would bring in this new reality where all of the good people would get to stay and all of the bad people would have to go. So this is the moment that Jesus finds himself at this dinner, right? <laughs> Pretty loaded moment. All these different kinds of cultural things are going on in this moment. So it's no wonder that the Pharisees are watching Jesus closely, as it says there at the end of verse 1. And so the question that kind of hangs in the balance is, how is this going to go? How is Jesus going to handle this moment? I love what happens next. Luke 14, verse 2. I love how he says this too. Behold, what do you know? <laughs> The worst possible person shows up. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, 
Dropsy is a physical ailment. It's most likely inflammation of the joints, making it difficult for this man to stand up on his own power. And somehow, I'm not even really sure how, but somehow he's there. He gets into the room or he's present in some way in front of all of these religious folks. Now, in the Pharisee worldview, this man and others like him would have been easily identified as outsider, clearly a sinner. Somewhere along the line, whether it was his parents or himself, they had done something wrong. They had somehow violated these purity laws. And as a result, that sin was manifesting itself in his physicality. So his obvious sin made him unclean, which meant that he was disconnected from the community. It's even odd that he's there to begin with. How did he get into the room? Which is probably actually the question the Pharisees are asking (laughs) in that moment. And again, I love what happens next. It says, Jesus responded. Pharisees haven't said anything yet. It's kind of like there's this whole hidden cultural conversation that's happening in that moment, but no one's actually saying any words. Ever been in a moment like that? But Jesus somehow sensed what was going on, and so he responds to their either ignoring of the situation or pretending like nothing is going on and says this, ask them a question to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? This is a tough one for the Pharisees because according to the law, actually, no, you weren't supposed to do this. But how are you supposed to say no to a real, actual human being in front of you? So they say nothing, and they try to ignore the situation, hope that this just all somehow goes away on its own. So Jesus takes the man and heals him and then sends him on his way. And if you read through the whole text that we have for us today, 1 through 14, it's easy to sort of skip over this moment. It's like Jesus kind of heals him and then sends him off and then tells some stories, and that's almost the most important part. But think about this for a moment. Jesus heals this guy, which would have been awesome for him, right? (laughs) First of all, because his dropsy is gone. He can now stand on his own power. His physical ailment has been cured, but also, and maybe even more importantly, he is now in just like that no longer an outsider his cleanness has been restored he can now be a full participant in the life of the community just like that there's a little gospel story there right then jesus drops some logic on the pharisees he says to them which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a sabbath day will not immediately pull him out and again they could not reply to these things. Jesus using a little bit of logic there to sort of highlight the ways in which their observance of the law has gotten way out of control. What an awkward dinner. (laughs) Jesus is really messing with what I would call their Waffle House theology, this insider thinking. And one of the things that we see, whether we're talking about the Pharisees or religious people in our day, is that it is very difficult for an insider to give up their privileged position. So, what does Jesus do? As we've seen throughout this series in Luke, Jesus doesn't stand up and preach a sermon. He doesn't give a big lecture. He tells a story. And this is another one of those parables that's unique to Luke's gospel. 
Luke 14, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed that they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now first, this story sounds like just some nice social advice. kind of seems obvious. If you've ever been to a wedding, unless you're the bride, you know that day is not about you, right? It's about the bride. <laughs> so again, on the surface of this, it seems like Jesus is giving us something that's really not all that revolutionary, just some nice advice. But let's look at it a little bit more closely. Because Jesus here isn't just giving us some guidelines for how to behave at a social gathering. He's painting a picture of what his kingdom looks like. And the key verse there, of course, is the last one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is an incredibly consistent theme in Jesus' teaching through the book of Luke and really through all four of the Gospels. The great reversal. The last will be first. The poor will become rich. The unclean, clean. Those who are out are in. The humbled will be exalted. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And of course, the greatest reversal in this kingdom is embodied by Jesus himself. Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The great reversal. Of course, the great reversal really is this, that God entered into the mess of our world. God came close to us to restore our relationship with him. And in doing that, in coming close to us, in getting involved in the mess of humanity, Jesus obliterates these insider-outsider categories. At the end of that passage we just read, we read that every knee will bow. And of course, not every knee will bow, but the larger point here is this. Because Jesus submitted himself humbly to this death on a cross, it is possible that anyone can come. Anyone can come. Anyone can participate in this kingdom. This is how Jesus sort of wraps up the scene. Verses 12 through 14. He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, 
Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now in that first parable, Jesus is really speaking against this interior issue, this heart issue. He speaks against the pride that is at the center of so much religious insider thinking. He's saying you're not special because you have the best seat in the house. In my kingdom, you're special when you take the worst seat. Okay, when you sacrifice that privilege for someone else. Then in this second scene here, Jesus says that to be an insider in the upside-down kingdom is to, again, use your status to make room for those who are outside, to invite those who can't repay you, to bless those who won't be able to bless you back. And thinking particularly about the Pharisees in this scene, their intense devotion to the rules prevented them from loving a real, actual person standing in front of them. What Jesus is doing here in this scene is bringing this inward posture and this outward posture together in what theologian Dallas Willard calls the unity of spiritual orientation. That's your $10 word for the day. The unity of spiritual orientation. Willard explains it like this. To understand Jesus' teachings, we must realize that deep in the orientations of our spirit, we cannot have one posture towards God and a different one towards other people. We cannot love God and hate human beings. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you guys look so good. You have all the rules down. You're theological experts. You are in. But you cannot claim to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and spend so much energy caring about who is in and who is out. That is not how this kingdom works. This kingdom works by following the example of Jesus, by laying our lives down so that those who are far off, who are out, can come close, can be in. And so, of course, Jesus is not just challenging the Pharisees. He's also challenging us. So a couple of questions. I think, first of all, we need to ask the question, have I experienced the grace of the great reversal, the reality that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death? Not just for the whole world, but for you personally, individually. Have you experienced the grace of the great reversal? Then, do you claim to have experienced God's grace in your own life, but then withhold it from others, especially those who might be different from you, who maybe challenge your own version of Waffle House theology? Maybe another way of saying it is this. Does your religion prevent you from loving real, actual people who are right in front of you. One of my all-time favorite stories is told by Tony Campolo in his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. Good book, bad cover. (laughs) If you've been in church for a while, you've probably actually heard this story. It's been told by many different people in many different settings. So I apologize if you've heard it before, but it's so good, and I think it speaks to this parable captures the tone of this parable the 
upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom. The story goes like this. Tony Campolo is an East Coaster and he flies to Hawaii for a speaking engagement. And when he gets there, his body is all thrown off by the time changes. And so he's unable to fall asleep. And so he finds himself in this little shabby diner in Honolulu at three o'clock in the morning. And he's sitting in this diner drinking coffee and this group of women come in and it's pretty apparent to Tony what their profession is. Group of prostitutes, there's about eight or nine of them. And they sit down and they begin a conversation and so Tony writes this. He says, one of them who is sitting near me mentioned that her birthday would be tomorrow. The other woman laughed and joked. One of them even said, what, you want us to throw you a party or something? Agnes, that was her name, said, no, no one's ever thrown me a party before. After the women left, I approached the guy behind the counter and I asked, Do those women come here every morning? The guy, his name was Harry, said, yeah, pretty much every day. So I said, here's what I would like to do. I'd like to come back tomorrow and throw a surprise party for Agnes. Harry called to his wife who came out of the kitchen. We told her the plan and she said, that's a wonderful idea. Agnes is really great, and no one ever does anything nice for her. If it's okay with you, I said, I'll get back here tomorrow early enough to decorate, and I'll bring a birthday cake. No, 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 said Harry. The birthday cake is my thing. I'll make the cake. The next morning at 2.30, I was back. Harry and I and his wife hung crepe paper, balloons, cardboard sign that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. The shabby little diner was transformed. Harry and his wife must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. <laughs> Wall-to-wall prostitutes. And me and Harry and his wife. At 3.30 on the dot, the door swung open, and in came Agnes and her friends. We all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Never before had I seen someone so stunned. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools, we all sang, Happy Birthday. When we came to the end of the song, Happy Birthday, Dear Agnes, Happy Birthday to You, her eyes moistened. And when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried into the room, she just lost it and sobbed. Harry grumbled, Blow out the candles, Agnes. Blow them out. If you don't blow them out, I'll blow them out for you. And after a few seconds, he did. <laughs> then he handed her a knife and said, cut the cake, Agnes. Let's serve the cake. Agnes looked at the cake for a long time and then said, is it OK if I keep the cake for a while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right now? Harry shrugged his shoulders and said, sure. Sure, it's OK. If you want to keep the cake, keep it. Take it home if you want. She asked, can I? Then, looking at me, she said, I just live down the street a couple of doors. I'll take the cake home and be right back, I promise. She picked up the cake and walked out of the diner holding it like it was the Holy Grail. We just stood there and watched her leave. The diner door closed and there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, how about we pray? <laughs> Do 
Looking back on it now, he writes, it seems a little strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes, for her salvation. Prayed her life would be changed and that God would be gracious to her. When I finished praying, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And one of those wonderful moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry paused a moment and then he said, No, you don't. <laughs> There's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. And Tony concludes the story by saying, wouldn't we all? So Regen, may we never, ever be a Waffle House church. Exclusive, insider, and in particular religious in a way that makes it impossible for us to love actual, real people who are right in front of us. Now, may we be a grace-infused, party-throwing, upside-down kingdom kind of church. Let's pray. Father, we continue to be grateful for these stories that Jesus tells, for the ways that they dismantle some of the religious things that we create and hold on to. It could be hard to wrap our minds around the implications of your upside-down kingdom. What does it really mean for the humble to be exalted, for the exalted to be humbled? I pray first and foremost that everyone in this room would know the grace of the great reversal, not just intellectually or because they heard me or Albert or someone else explain it, but deep down in our hearts and souls and those really deep places in our lives, God, may we know the lengths that you have gone through to be with us, to be friends with us, giving up all of the privilege of being part of the mystery of the Trinity, the three-in-one God, giving that up to make your way into the mess of this world, the mess of our lives. So again, may we know that in the really truest, deepest sense of the word. And may that begin to transform us and soften us and change our hearts so that we are able to love fully real, actual people who are living next to us, working next to us, riding the bus with us, in church with us, in home group with us. May we know how to love each other well the way that you have loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' strong name.